very happy to have George Quillen with us this morning to share. Oh my, look at the clock. Don't let that bother you. Go right ahead. <laughs> uh, I'd like to pray with you. Thank and you. Then we'll go ahead. Father, thank you that George can be here this morning. We just pray your blessing on him. And as he opens the word, we just pray your blessing on us as we receive it. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Dear congregation, I greet you in the name of the Lord Christ. It is good to be together. My, there are a lot of you. (laughs) What a declaration already we've made this morning, haven't we? Have you noticed it? Christ is supreme. He's sufficient. He's good. This morning we'll be reading from Acts chapter 14. Would you please join me? Take your Bibles and join me in Acts chapter 14. We'll be looking specifically at verses 21 and 22, but for a bit of context, we're going to begin in verse 19. Acts 14, beginning in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We all can do with a bit of reminding now and then and considering this this time as you seek God's man for the role of pastor here, I would remind you of a couple of responsibilities that you have as a local church. First, that of the pastor and the centrality of preaching. And secondly, your responsibility one to another. So I'm loosely calling this our church family responsibilities. That we as Christians are called to a covenant community, that is the new covenant community, should come as no surprise to us. I mean, scripture repeatedly describes our our being in his family, which is known as his covenant family or in our history, a Gemeinschaft. This is normal to us. Well, there's appropriate behavior in this church family relationship that we have. In fact, scripture knows of no believer living out their faith in isolation. Yes, the Lord is with us no matter where we are. But God has specifically called us to gather together each Lord's Day. And he has great wisdom behind that call. Matthew 5.14 describes us as a city on a hill. That's graphic language for us. We are indeed a family. Therefore, God sets in place certain expectations which are to characterize us. And inasmuch as we are a spiritual family, we are to look to the only objective source of God's self-revelation to guide us, and that is his word. And it's from this word that we learn how to live in a manner pleasing to God and of blessing to each other. So notice that there is a head, heart, and hands relationship such as we see in Colossians chapter 1. I will have several references for us this morning. I would recommend, unless you just have lightning fast fingers, that you just write it down for, for later. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. 
And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As God word, God's word informs our minds, that truth informs our affections and our affections will inform our behavior, our lifestyle. We must believe rightly, which, of course, Stems from scripture. And when we believe rightly, our affections will be rightly placed. And when those are rightly placed on the Lord Christ and the family to which he's made us a part, then we will act appropriately within that context. First, we notice a pastoral responsibility and specifically the centrality of gospel preaching. Pastors are notoriously burdened with a whole host of expectations that, truth be told, are not rooted in scripture. There's nothing wrong with these expectations we put on them necessarily, but they are not the primary purpose of the pastor. We understand that he has one primary role. We'll get to that shortly. But central to Christian worship is regularly gathering for the preaching of the Bible. We observe scripturally that while singing is appropriate and good heavens, I haven't heard singing like this since my days in South Louisiana. That was wonderful. Thank you. It just thundered through this place. It was it was good. Singing is essential. Prayer is essential. Thanksgiving is essential. But what we find in Scripture to be part and parcel of Christian worship is that of the proclaiming of God's word. That is his ordained means for instructing, encouraging, exhorting, building up his people who we call the church. We see, for example, evidence for this, such as in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, where we are told succinctly, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Part of the reason for preaching's primacy is that it's so instructive for God's people and particularly his under shepherds, that is, his pastors, elders. For leading the sheep to the green pastures of his word or another imagery we see in Psalm 23, the still waters who we know to be Christ. And it's in the local church context where God specifically does this to love God is to desire to learn of him. And by gathering, we demonstrate our belief in this Sunday school, corporate worship, Wednesday evening services and other midweek services that are given to have people attend these services shows that we understand that we need each other. And we certainly don't have a market on God's word. There's much to learn. And I submit to you that we cannot ever fully mine God's word for its worth, for its substance. It's a lifetime journey. Familiarity promotes closeness, however. This, through sound preaching and teaching, builds up the local church. 
We must give priority to the sound teaching and preaching within our local church. There's no substitute. And we see, in fact, in 1 Timothy 3.15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And this church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. In other words, God has entrusted to the church the task of promoting and protecting the gospel. The local church. Yes, we're a part of it. But it's the local church as a body. Some have described us as a local body of baptized believers. That's pretty, pretty good language. It's useful. In fact, Paul labors that body analogy through Corinthians Another theologian has noted we have to determine our theology from the word of God, not from how we feel. Our feelings are a roller coaster. They come and go up and down, ebb and flow, wax and wane. It depends on our mood at the moment and what we just happen to think. But that rarely establishes fact. So we go to the only objective source that God has provided to that is the Holy Scripture, eternally relevant. The same today as when it was first penned. And he has preserved that word. He's preserved it through the centuries. So since he has preserved his word for his people, then we are responsible. As pastors, preachers, teachers, those leading the less informed, the less mature. Proper exposition. That's a 50 cent word. It simply means the drawing out. Read the text for what it says. Study it word for word. What is it saying? Draw out the meaning from that. Much as you throw the bucket in the well to draw out the water, you throw in the study, read the text, draw out the meaning. That is the opposite from what we frequently observe today, which is eisegesis or reading into the text. If you have to put it there, you're on shaky ground. So we are responsible to be careful. We are responsible to properly exegete. To draw out from scripture sound biblical theology for the health of our congregations. We need it. Whether or not we realize its value. I read the story of a man who said he was giving up on church. He'd been going for years. He said, I'm not getting anything from it. I might as well stay home. Hear this he put in the paper. A short time later, a response came through the And this man said, you know, I've been married for quite a long time. And my wife has made many fine meals for me. No, I can't recall exactly what she made on any. I can't remember what happened last week. But I dare say that had she not cooked for me and I had I not enjoyed the benefit of her meal, I wouldn't be here today to tell you about it. Point well taken. You may leave on any given Lord's Day. Get in your car, go home and not recall much of what was said during the service, the Sunday school, the meeting, and think, well, I didn't get anything from that. And it's possible. It's possible. That does not mean that growth did not take place. It does not mean that your spirit has not been nurtured. God's word will not return to him void. It will accomplish its purpose. It always does, whether or not we realize it at the moment. Hearing the gospel preached is God's ordained means of leading us. Yes, first to believe, but also to grow. We see this in Romans ten fourteen. Romans ten fourteen. 
We'll back up to 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? My, the parallels we see. Such a theme of missions this morning. Thank you to Brother Zook. He beat me to it. I was planning on Psalm 122, and he got there first. Seems he beat somebody else to the punch, too. How God works. This is why it is essential that it's proclaimed accurately, since it is God's ordained plan that people should come to believe by hearing the gospel. It's incumbent upon us to ensure that they are hearing the gospel, not a distortion of it, not a popular version of it. We dare not soften the gospel to try to make it more palatable. We dare not make God's word less than what Christ himself did. He was offensive, wasn't he? He called people out for what they were and they hated him for it. And he assured us that when we do the same, so will the world. We must be careful that we are presenting the word accurately. The word and the spirit both work together, contributing to renewal of our mind. We see this in Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. The word is doing a lot in us. It calls us to faith. It grows us in the faith. It progresses us in sanctification. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice also with me Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Verse 5. He, Christ, saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And you'll notice in Philippians 4, 8, what God declares to be truly good. This is what we're being renewed Unto Philippians 4, 8, well-known text. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And anything not on that list isn't worth your time, believer. Honestly, it's not worth our time. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul tells us, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
And that we discover is by God's spirit indwelling us. And in fact, we see in Ephesians chapter five, verses 25 through 27, Paul is explaining the purpose for this renewal. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. <clears throat> Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved, loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Beautiful language. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. And you'll recall in First Peter, he urges us. As he who called you is holy, so you also must be holy in all your conduct. Has that been your experience? Holy in all your conduct? It's not been mine. That's sobering. He who called you is eternally holy, unstained, pure, sinless, magnificently glorious. And he calls us to be the same. Do we desire it? Do we want it? Yes, we're still in the flesh here. Yes, we've not been glorified. He's coming again one day. Amen. But until then, we struggle, don't we? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Indeed, it's weak. But that's what we are, what we are urged to pursue. Hearing gospel truth preached, it convicts. It exhorts, it builds up and instructs. And this occurs in a local church context. We need each other. You know, when Paul speaks about the spiritual gifts, each believer is given at least one, though many have more. And did you know that your spiritual gift that the spirit has apportioned to you is not for you? It's for the brothers and sisters. It's for the local church. And that's why it's essential that we come together each Lord's Day, because for you to use that gift properly, you have to be with the brothers to use it. You have something they need and they have something that you need. And God has designed us for that community relationship. And it's essential that we come together to do that. We cannot improve on God's method. His is already perfect. This promotes maturity. Which is the natural expectation of someone who's in Christ. We see in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 16. Here we see the primary role of the pastor. And of the congregation too. This is a very telling section. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers... To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Like a telegraph, we stop. To equip the saints, that's, that's us, for the work of ministry. We cannot stop learning. We don't know it all. We have to grow. We have to grow. We have to engage something to learn it. And when we ask questions... Even when we're upset by what we hear, at least we're engaging it because we're mulling over and over in our mind what it is we disagree with. Either way, we're still learning a bit from it. So it's good. It's useful. 
And here's why. For building up the body of Christ. That's us. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Have we arrived at that? I haven't. The work's not done yet. He'll take us home when he's ready and when... He has taught us what he has for us to learn. Well, we will recall 2 Timothy 3.16 and its description of the sufficiency of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The word is enough. We can't improve on that either. It's not the word plus something else. It's God's word, period. Sometimes we're tempted to give in, to capitulate to the whims of the age, to try to appear relevant, whatever that's supposed to mean. I submit to you that the world in its rebellion against God is supremely irrelevant. So we really have no interest in what the world thinks. They're spiritually dead they're on the they're on the road to hell if we're to be honest so we're not interested in what the world thinks what the world has to say because they are an open rebellion against god god says that friendship with the world is enmity against me or hatred against god so we have no interest in what the world thinks what we do is we have interest in what the lord christ thinks is he pleased with us are we faithful to him are we rightly handling his word are we loving the flock as the way he's intended for us to. Do we love the church as he does? Are we pursuing holiness? Are we living righteously? We are declared righteous in Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith alone. Amen? We are. We must dig in our heels on that. It is not faith plus something else. It's faith alone. In Jesus Christ alone. Period. End of discussion. That is the message that we affirm and we dig in our heels for. Are we, though, acting, living righteously? We're told in Peter that we are. Well, let's let's let him speak for himself. First, Peter. Chapter two, verse nine. First Peter two nine. Here's what he says. <clears throat> but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A holy nation. We've been declared elsewhere to be justified by faith. So now we are responsible to live righteously. We're declared here to be a holy nation. Are we living a holy life? Just prior in chapter one. He says in verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy before that. 
Verse 15, as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. So we see what we are in position. We then have the next step of practicing. We are justified, righteous. We are holy. But are we living righteously? Are we living a holy life? Are we pursuing that? That's what's important. We're all in different stages in life, in our walk with Christ. But the question is not, have you arrived? The question is, are you making forward progress? That's the thing. You know, we will often say he looks at the heart. And on the one hand, that should terrify us because we read in Jeremiah that the heart is desperately wicked. We don't want him looking at the heart, but that's exactly what he does. We all have sinful hearts and a bad record. The grace be to God, he changes our heart in Christ. He takes away that stony heart of rebellion and replaces it with a warm heart of of deep and abiding affection for Christ. He makes that change in us, doesn't he? So we see that the proclamation of God's word is supremely significant to the life of God's churches in edifying his people. But we see there's a secondary value in that also. And that is producing, providing, maintaining an environment in which disciples may be made. You recall the Great Commission, Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me, heaven and earth. Therefore, go make disciples. The real accurate language there is saying as you're going, it's an assumption that you're already going. But let's take it as a command just in case we're not doing it yet. Go make disciples, baptize them and teach them all things whatsoever I've commanded you until the end of the age. And he is with us. We make disciples. So we see discipleship is not primarily a class, though it's good to have them. Let's have them, you know. Provide the fundamentals of the faith to new believers. In years past, uh, many churches made use of a catechism. Sometimes we flinch at that language because it smells a little Romish, but it's actually a good tool. Simply question and answer format. For example, one from the 16th century says, question, what is the chief end of man? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Hard not to get behind that. That's a good one, but boy, that's encompassing, isn't it? To, un- to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's a useful tool for children and young believers, but also for those of us who've been in Christ for a while. Because have you noticed, perhaps if you've been a believer for any length of time, that our affection for Christ sometimes cools a bit? There's no deficiency in Christ. There's none in his word. There's no deficiency in the local church. It really lies with us. Though our Sunday morning worship services are designed for and to be rendered by Christians, unbelievers are always welcome. They are. And in each assembly, they should hear the plain preaching of Scripture. That guilty sinners must be made right with God and that through Christ alone. We must be reminded the gospel is not just for unbelievers. Dear church, it's for Christians too. to remind us, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, miracle of miracles, came to save his enemies. Well, first things first, to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus, to realize that we are bereft of anything worth anything. Jesus Christ, Son of David, save me. 
wretched man that I am. Well, you'll recall we looked at Romans 10 earlier in verse 14 reminds us how unbelievers are to believe and that is through hearing the gospel. Well, in our text today, we've seen through a wide walk around the block, the preaching of the gospel and the and the producing of disciples. They made disciples. Well, notice a couple things about this. Not only is it not a class, but rather it's a it's a making of a disciple. It's it's a mentoring of someone sitting down with someone who has been made a, a disciple initially through faith in Christ, but now to teach. Matthew 20, 20 said we're to be teaching them to observe all that he's commanded. Well, then the, that begs the question, what did Jesus command? Well, a whole lot of stuff, but we're going to look just in Matthew for a, for a couple of moments here and see just a few things through there. We'll start in Matthew chapter four. We'll see verse 17. This is part of that first things first. Matthew four seventeen. Jesus began to preach, saying, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is not just admitting something. This is actually doing something in response to something. To repent is to acknowledge that our sin is treason against God. And it is to turn from it and run like the wind in the opposite direction. I have offended a holy God by my sin. I'm not only admitting that. I'm going to run from the sin and run to Christ. There's where repentance happens. And he's calling it right here. This is an imperative. Verse 19. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. We repent of our sin. We are reconciled to God. We are justified. We're made holy. We follow Christ. And then he makes us to fish for other men, too. Chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. How on earth can you command somebody to rejoice? But he just did. And be glad, too, while you're at it. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verses 16 and 17. In the same way, let your light shine before others. We cannot keep it to ourselves. Contrary to popular opinion, Christianity is not a private thing. This is public. The lid's blown off. There is no secret. It's out. You're a Christian or you're not. And if you are, it's wide open and 3D for everybody to see. That's why he made us. <laughs> Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he's calling us to be obedient. Verses 44 to 46 in the same chapter. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Okay, we're starting to lose this there because how can we be perfect this side of glory? It appears to me that it's the pursuing of it. The relentless pursuit of perfection in Christ. More so than the attainment of it here because we understand that will happen in glory. Right? Next and last one, chapter 6, verse 33. 
Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things that you need, he will add to you. We quickly begin to see that discipleship is is an all-encompassing ministry of which all Christians are a part. Are you? Are you? To be a member of this local church means there's a place and an opportunity for you to contribute to this. No church member is without opportunity to serve. No church membership has no purpose. Every single person in in the positive, every single person in the church membership has something they can do to contribute to the Lord, to in, in loving service to him, to contribute to the life of the local church. Sometimes it takes another wiser, more mature brother to help us discover that we're family. Family works together. So first we see then that pastoral responsibility through sound preaching. Secondly. There's a congregational responsibility one to another. There are two of that. First, strengthening disciples' souls, and secondly, encouraging one another to persevere. Strengthening disciples' souls. We see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11. Therefore, In light of everything he's been saying, encourage one another and not just keep a stiff upper lip or it'll get better. Everybody goes through tough times. Those are true, but they're not helpful. How on earth are we then to encourage one another to build up one another? But by God's word. That's where life is found. That's where growth is found. It's eternally objective. You and I and what we think, we're subjective. We change like the wind, depending on the day, how we're feeling, which side of the bed we woke up on. But God's word is eternally consistent. It's objective. It never changes. Just like the God who wrote it doesn't change. I, the Lord, your God, do not change. We read Malachi. Neither does his word. So by his word and spirit, Encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. He's commending this church in Thessalonica to continue doing that. Is that your experience also? Encouraging and building up one another? What a privilege it is to encourage one another in the Lord. To be a part of seeing someone lifted up when they are encountering a difficult time. In the same chapter here, 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul spells out for us how we're to do this. Notice the second half of verse 15 and continuing. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. That may remind you, there's another place we read in the Gospels that says, love one another, especially the brothers. Yes, we're to love those around us. With an effort to try to bring the gospel of God's saving grace to them. But we're especially supposed to love the brothers because we're in the same family. Even when another brother kind of rubs our fur the wrong way, we still have to love them because we're in the same family. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. It doesn't say that we're giving thanks because of the circumstances, but in them. You don't have to be grateful when a trauma happens, but we can be grateful for the God who walks with us through it, who grows us up by it, who ministers to people through that. He does that very often. 
For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. That testing language, that's just what we saw in Romans 12, 1 and 2, wasn't it? We're to be renewed in our mind that we may discern. That is generally lacking today. A discernment of sound teaching from false teaching. And there's a simple solution we can have for that, and that is to shackle ourselves to God's word. It says what it means, and it means what it says. It's really that simple. Yes, careful study. But read the word. Read the word. I like to hear rustling pages because that means you're not taking my word for it. Read it. Whether we're counseling, praying, preaching, teaching, or trying to encourage each other, it's the same life-transforming word of God that breathes life into these weary souls, of which we also have. We do. Matthew 4, 4 has a reminder. Jesus said it is written right in the middle of his temptation. The man is starving. And when offered, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And even though the scripture does not record everything that Christ did, it records what God deemed to be most important to us to have. And so it's incumbent on us to labor over what he gave us. Why he didn't give us everything? Well, space is an issue, but he gave us this for a reason. And he grows us through this. But secondly, encouraging one another to persevere. Acts 13.43 Acts 13.43 We see an example of this. We saw in our verse 22 today that having made disciples, they returned to some of the churches, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. We see the same thing here in Acts 13.43. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. There's some vivid imagery we see in Scripture. we, We often think... What's this perseverance language and this this confessing of Christ and so on? But part of our difficulty is because we didn't live in this time. We don't think like a Jew and we don't relate very well to first century Christianity. What is it Paul's getting at when he talks about if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Christ? I believe in Jesus. I think you do too. Okay, is that it? No, that's not it. Consider where he was, to whom he was speaking, and the circumstances in which he spoke. Speaking to Roman believers. You recall the situation in Rome at that time? It was not a good day to be a Christian. Well, it was for the Christian in a sense, but culturally speaking, it was not only uh, a black sheep. Picture a Roman soldier coming to you and sticking a sword to your throat and asking whom you serve. Christ or Caesar? What say ye? 
If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Can you confess Christ when you have death right at your throat? There's the question. That's where we learn that a liar makes a lousy martyr. Not willing to die for something we don't believe. The genuine are made apparent in the threat of death. So we encourage each other, hang in there. The days are dark. The days are evil. Not much changes. The days were evil then too. But this is our experience, not theirs. The days are evil. And the world would call on us to throw in the towel, bail out on Christ, and just live for self. Hang in there. Well, we see in Jude 20, another word that speaks clearly to this. Jude 20 and 21. Jude 20, he says, But you, beloved, that's a warm, tender word. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy. Expect suffering, dear believers. Expect it. If you are in Christ, it will come, whether by God's hand or the world's. But we know that when God brings us suffering and affliction, it's always by his holy design to work godliness and holiness in us. We read in Isaiah 48, he says, Behold, I have refined you in the furnace of affliction. For my name's sake, my glory I will not give to another. He refines us. He purifies us. In this experience of sanctification, that's what he does. Our main purpose truly is to glorify God. And Hebrews 12.6 reminds us that the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. Not all affliction is because of sin. Sometimes it's just to grow us up a little bit. And in verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Yet later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So, yes, some affliction comes by the world's hands, too. John 15, 20, Jesus tells us that if they persecuted me, and they did, they will also persecute you. Expect it. Expect it. Yet we learn that even that has a maturing effect on us. Nonetheless, to be in Christ is for the Spirit to preserve us so that we persevere to the end. We see that in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 13 and 14, he says, Paul says, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And then we see the same thing in chapter four, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Well, what are we saying? The ordinary Christian life is one of daily trusting Christ, repenting of sin, loving God and neighbor, daily proclaiming the gospel to ourselves, families, friends and communities. It's not a complacent, passionless, casual faith. 
but rather we are united to Christ to bear life-giving fruit. And we've seen that fruit in Galatians. Is this a description of you? Take it to the Lord in prayer, that you may love your eternal spiritual family on God's terms, for his glory, your joy, and the church's edification as you live Coram Deo, before the face of God. Glory be to God. Let's pray. Father, you've been kind. You've been gracious. Your mercy demonstrated daily for us. Remind us at every turn of your goodness, your patience, your forgiveness, and the joy that you have for us. Clean us, Lord. As a local church, Lord, I pray for strength for dedication to you and your word, that you would give discernment and wisdom to this church pursuing pursuing your man to minister your word to them. Lord, would you bless the efforts of this local church, fan into flame uh, an unquenchable desire, not only for your glory, but for the great joy of the community. Work in each one to increase affection for you, to enjoy clarity of calling, and to love neighbors self unto your glory and their joy. In Christ's name, amen.